I've got some 30-year-old Space Marine models that I still haven't painted yet. Does that count as a long-term project? This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I'm your host, Jay Arnold. Welcome to episode 14. Today we speak with Simon Tonkas about planning large projects. As always, the Veteran Wargamer is brought to you by Kings Hobbies and Games retailer of premium painting and modeling supplies for the gamer. This now includes special artisan service miniatures, 3D printed models. In particular, Tim has been going crazy with ultra-modern vehicles and infantry. On the infantry front, Tim is running a pre-order for the Norwegian Hunter Team, an all-female special operations unit. The promotion runs through April 20th, so that's only two weeks from the time this episode goes live. Check out Tim's video on the Hunter Team for details on how to order. The link is in the show notes. Check out the many other models available in a variety of sizes from 10 to 54 millimeter at kingshobbiesandgames.com. That's kingshobbiesandgames.com. After the break, my discussion with Simon. And we're back today. I'm joined by Simon Tonkis. Simon, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Jay. Great to speak to you at last. We've emailed many times, haven't we? Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. Good to, yes. to say that the project we're going to discuss today is inspiring is an understatement. Um, well, thank, you. thank you for that. As, as always, though, we do need to find out what makes you a veteran wargamer. Right, okay. Well, I'm feeling like a veteran wargamer today because I've developed that ailment, I think, known to wargamers as a command and colors stick of thumb. <laughs> because I've just... Because... <laughs> Last week I just bought Command and Colors Napoleonics and I've been sticking stickers on for days and it feels like there's no end to it. So um, so certainly maybe something you should do when you're a younger man. Well. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, so to go through my normal thing, you are going to score on the bingo, I will mention ethics, um, but it's I probably didn't really... Um, war game with airfix figures. I started off playing toy soldiers with them like a lot of people um, uh, of a certain age did. Uh, but I was really more into playing the soldiers, making the kits, making model airplanes, hanging them from my ceiling as, as, as kids do. Um, and interested in the sort of the military modeling aspect of that. Mm. And I did that for quite a few years. And I used to buy, um, there's a magazine called Military Modeling that is still going nowadays. Mm -hmm. that used to be able to get in the 70s. And I bought that because I was interested in the military modeling. Um, and in that magazine at the time, it was full of adverts. It's hard to think back to pre-internet days where you, know, you used to read magazines to find out what was available. Right. And uh, the adverts in that were, yes, for military modeling things, but also quite a lot of wargaming um, companies were advertising in military modeling magazine, which first made me aware that there was, there was such a thing other than airfix that made toy soldiers that you could play with. Uh, and I remember, oh, this was the mid-70s, seeing you know, a particularly enticing range from um, Minifigs, their Middle-Earth range, the very first fantasy range I think had come out. Mm -hmm. And I'd just been reading Lord of the Rings as a kid and was you know, inspired by um, by you know, the thought of fantasy battles and, and something that had, had never occurred to me until I read that book. And then seeing this list of figures and you could get dwarves and... and Gondor knights and Rohan riders, and it was just—it it was unimaginable that this was possibly out there. Right. Um, although I couldn't really afford them because I think they were five pence a figure or something like that. Oh, wow. was, you know, <laughs> whoa, no way could I afford that. Exorbitant. Um, yeah, indeed, and probably 
<laughs> luckily they didn't show pictures of them either they, they the, the figures are of a, a very certain certain age and mm -hmm. they they were the sort of detail that you would you would um, associate with war games figures now but it made me aware that the, um there was another world about wargaming and i started to realize oh there's other wargaming companies and occasionally military modeling would have um, an article about wargaming and i started to think yeah this is something i'm interested in um and i went down to uh, my local public library um which um i mean just as an aside libraries seem to have gone through a golden age that perhaps they're not in now i don't know whether it's the same in the states but in the 70s i, I was brought up in sort of a mid-sized town and living in a suburb of a mid-sized town i just went to the little local community library spoke to the librarian wasn't really sure what i was interested in she said oh it sounds like you're interested in wargaming we've mm -hmm. got a section on it and when there's, there's sort of 15 books about wargaming in this little right. sort of community library and there was the peter young one and the charles grant things and don featherson's airborne operations and um a great book about board gaming that was everything from Monopoly through to Third Reich. And right. it, was, it was it was a whole world became suddenly aware of. And uh, they had um, one book that was particularly inspiring to me that wasn't really a war gaming book um, called, I'm just looking at it here, Battles of the American Revolution by Kurt Johnson. Okay. And it was really a, a coffee table book that was about you know the main battles in the revolution. But it was illustrated with the old Peter Gilder Hinchliffe figures oh, okay. um, for each of the battles with a with a stage set up there. So nothing else about wargaming in the book, but the figures just look beautiful. And I bought another copy in the last few years, just to remind me of how, how inspirational that was. Um, and then the other the other book they had was um, a book called Practical Wargaming by Charlie Wesencraft. Mm -hmm. That's one of the, the sort of the classics. And uh, it's it's a fantastic little book with rules from ancients all the way through to Franco-Prussian War, and I was just I, I bought a copy last year at Salute just to remind me of it, and uh, just looking through the the rules, they're not you know they haven't dated in the way that some some rules of that period had. You know, he uses element-based basing, and he's got decent morale rules, and he's got campaign rules. Really, really quite forward-thinking, and that that inspired me to be right. I, I can see what wargaming is. I can maybe get some armies. Um, I settled down. Well, I. I, I couldn't make my mind up. I thought I might do something about the American War of Independence. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a local model shop that sold a few metal figures, as they did in those days. And they had some Hinchliffe um, American War of Independence figures. And I bought two British, well, I thought they were Grenadiers, probably Fusiliers. Yeah. Um, and I bought two figures. You know, I'd saved up. I went, my grandparents took me down. And I bought two of them. Uh, and I remembered now saying uh, to the, the man behind the counter, oh, and I'll need some red paint. And in the way that fairly condescending model shop owners did in the 1970s, he goes, you don't want red paint, you want British scarlet, he said. <laughs> Slammed a, a pot of humbral scarlet down on, which I had to buy. Um, but it's some years later, when I was doing my American War of Independence project, reading up on it, I realised that actually the line infantry at that time didn't wear British scarlet. They wore sort of madder red and yeah. not scarlet. It's the officers that wore scarlet. So I have this little thing goes in my mind one day I'll run into him again and say can you remember 40 years ago when you humiliated a 10 year old boy <laughs> I was that boy and I was right it was I did need red <laughs> so so if he's listening just just thought I'd remind you of that so um but but I actually settled on ancients and uh I got a fantastic Christmas present one year um we were lucky enough to live um, quite close to a company called Greenwood and Ball, who made the Garrison twenty-five millimeter figures, okay. and my uh, my parents bought me a small Greek and Persian army um, to um, to play with. And my dad 
made me a war games board because he'd flick through the books and got an idea and the and there's a man in the street used to repair snooker tables so he put green he'd got you know, cast off green oh. bays and stuff to, to, to put on the tables and it was uh it was and that got me started that was fantastic and i played with them for quite a few years i've none of them fully painted i must admit and i've still got some in um in my in my games room um and that got me into right i want to find more out about it and i went to um, there was a local war games club a very good one um and i went down there and discovered new new sorts of games so mm-hmm. um world war Two initially um and i bought some in 172nd World War Two, like we all do, and we played some games of that. But the, the the guy who was running that, he was very he was very good, a nice guy, very talented, beautiful army. But the scenario was always he was the Germans, you were attacking with three Shermans, and he had two tigers and a panther and a pack forty three all hidden in the village, and the result only ever went one way. Oh yeah. So, so yeah. So. <laughs> I think I've played against that guy myself. <laughs> yeah, and although he, he was lovely and I enjoyed it, I was starting to think, eh, yeah, there's probably more to more to gaming than this. Um, a lot of people played WRG Fifth and then Sixth Edition um, at that club, and um, I played quite a bit of that. I bought a Macedonian army in twenty five millimeter, and really, actually, actually, it, people don't like talk about WRG in a sort of bit of a, a progressive way now that they pejorative way. I mean, um, they, they, you know, it's it's old fashioned and it is, but it was quite enjoyable. A lot of people got a lot of enjoyment out of the old WRG mm-hmm. rules, and they, you know, they're of their time. But they, we, we played an awful lot of it, and uh, but I started to get more and more at that time seduced into role playing. So um, yeah, there's a few people starting to do role playing, and so D and D and Traveller, RuneQuest, um, all of the standards of that time. Right. Um, and that started to take up more and more of my time, um, and then started university and sort of got distracted into other things I've, I never stopped being a war gamer but I, I stopped doing it every week and because um, you know there, there are other things you do when you then uh, got a job got married and in the background maybe with some of my friends played board games and things um, and it was only um, 10 12 years or so ago in my early 40s when I I got back into it and thought that I want to get back into this as a hobby um, and whereas I suppose I'm different to a number of people, is that the whole Games Workshop thing passed me by. It was sort of in the time when I was at university and not so much gaming was mm-hmm. when Warhammer and 40K exploded. Um, and uh, I never really played it. Played a couple of games of third edition fantasy just because I had a friend who had it, but never really got into it. But seven or eight years ago, my son um, decided he quite liked the look of some of the figures I was painting, wanted to get into something like the idea of science fiction. So I took him down the, the games workshop and um, he started playing 40K. And I bought a 40K Necron army just to play against my son and realized that I actually really enjoy that game. And um, probably one of the few people who've started as a historical gamer uh-huh. got into games workshop and play both we're probably a, a small breed yeah and so um so i so i'm still distinctly a historical gamer but i do enjoy playing 40k in in its you know in all its variants up until today um it has its flaws it's not it's not a simulation game in any no, sense no. it doesn't it does it doesn't simulate history it certainly doesn't simulate what life will be like in 40,000 years time I can guarantee that <laughs> and, and it doesn't even very well simulate the books that they write because you know they things happen in a different way but it but as a game it's right. a good challenge and it's got a very rich background and you there's some fantastic people are into it as well you tend to think about the the bad things perhaps about games workshop players about 
competitive players and that sort of thing. I very rarely see that. I see people who just love their hobby. And mm-hmm. I, I was fortunate enough until a couple of weeks ago to work opposite Warhammer World and so could quite often pop in and see some of the, the hobby stuff that people are doing in there. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, um, I, I, I really enjoy it, but I wouldn't stop being a historical gamer either. Right. And that sort of brings me up to the current day. All right. Um, well, I do have to just mention as an aside, your proximity to Warhammer World has worked to my favor uh, <laughs> because you're gracious enough to uh, to pick up a, a copy of the Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader reprint and and send to me for a for a small fee. But it's I I might do actually I'll probably do a review of that book on the show on my next episode. I think okay, great because I'm. Because it was still in the cellophane wrapper when I sent it off to yes. you, so I haven't seen inside, and I don't know whether it's well produced or just just a photocopy of the old rules. So, Spoil- spoiler alert: it's it's gorgeous. It is oh, gorgeous. Brilliant. I'm glad. So, yeah. Um, and it's a it's a big old book, as we found out when we looked at the postage costs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's thirty five for the book and fifteen for shipping. God. Yeah, yeah, I know. Sorry about that. But it was, hey, uh, don't blame. Hey, don't blame yourself. Blame the queen. She, it's the royal mail, after all, right? It, it it certainly is, and they they need to get their money. Um, but it's yeah, it's interesting that they've they've reprinted that. Oh, oh, it, we're going off subject, but it's um, they, they certain. It's a shame they've only done it just for visitors to Warhammer World because that is yeah, great for us people who live near Nottingham. Yeah. Not so good for everyone else in the world. Yeah, so, I, they've got well. Adepticon is going on right now up in Chicago, or Schaumburg, and I see that um, their their painter guy from Warhammer World TV or from Warhammer TV, yeah, Duncan, Duncan, Duncan yeah. yeah, he he's there, so I got to think that they've got an official presence there, and I got to think that they're selling copies there. Oh, they might do. Yeah, they do have an official presence because they've made some um, some announcements, haven't they, about um, how. Uh, the new edition of 40k will be in the, right. when it comes out in the summer, which is quite unusual for Games Workshop to make announcements. Right, that's uh, yeah. Those those announcements were made last weekend at Gamma out in Reno. Oh, Nevada. oh, were they? Oh, were they? Oh, right. So, um, yeah, that's again. This well, actually, the next episode that I'm recording is going to be with Mike Hobbs, and we're going to talk exactly about about this. What mm-hmm. what will it take for us old timers to get back in Games Workshop? So. <laughs> Stay tuned in two weeks, even though I'm recording now through the through the magic of you know the wibbly wobbly timey wimey internet. It's uh, it's it's going to be a good episode. But anyway, let's get back to right. our episode. Yes, yeah, okay. And uh, I I guess we need to talk about what your project is. So uh, if you haven't seen uh, if you haven't seen Simon's project. Uh, do you have a name for the project, or is it just Mortune? Or it's it's, it's the Legion. Uh, uh, I apologize for my French pronunciation. The Legion du Mortone. So okay. it's um, it's 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 the name of the the army. Yeah. So. Okay, and that's spelled M O R T U N. And I'll have a I'll have a link to Simon's blog on uh, on the show notes. But uh, just as an observer, you know, initial reaction to it is it's. Uh, GW Forge World Death Corps of Krieg figures painted like World War One French, and that's that's it. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. But there's much more to it than that, and uh, it's it's a huge project from from what I can tell, and I guess we just need to get cracking into how you went about planning this 
this pretty comprehensive project. Okay, yeah. Um, well, I think, I, I, and the idea of doing this was, um, I'd always been a fan of First World War French uniforms. Mm-hmm. I just from the days when I bought the Airfix figures and thought, oh yeah, blue uniforms in the trenches, that's a bit strange, and I, I love that idea. Um, I, uh, I've always liked, since I saw them, the Games Workshop Death Corps figures, which are um, Imperial Guardsmen, um, but done in a sort of, with a First World War motif. So they gas masks and trench coats and things, and I've always thought I quite like to paint them. Um, and these have been ideas that have been buzzing around, but it never formulated into a project. What what started me on this was um, about a year and a half ago, I, I bought an airbrush and I got a, um, did a short course in how to do airbrushing. And, and I was trying to think, well, what am I going to do with this airbrush? And uh, you know, vehicle-based projects seemed to be the thing to do. And I'd relatively recently been on a visit to the, the British Tank Museum at Bovington and seen some of the, um, the French First World War camouflage schemes mm-hmm. on on tanks, and thought, oh, they're amazing. I'd quite like to teach myself to airbrush sort of these complex camouflage patterns. Um, and I thought, well, let's put these together. I like French infantry uniforms. I like the Death Corps figures. I like the French camouflage patterns, and I want to spray paint tanks. This this will be what I want to do on a project. Um, and. Uh, I, I therefore took the the Games Workshop Death Corps idea, which is quite Germanic, quite sort of German First World War, and just tried to think about how I would make that um, more French. And mm-hmm. I think um, if we may be talking a bit more generically about planning projects, just dwelling on which of my projects have been successful and which less so, and looking at some of my friends' projects uh, of the same. The first bit about thinking about project, about what you're going to enjoy about that project, is is the most important bit. Because if you're not enjoying doing the project, you're going to go off and do something else. Right. And um, uh, wargaming projects are not like you know work projects where you're building a building or delivering some software. It's not just about finishing. Often the journey is is the bit that's the fun bit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it could be that you only do a project because you want to play a game, and therefore you should structure your project around getting some playable figures on the table very quickly. Um, or it could be that the thing you get out of a project is painting. For me, this was a painting project, so I've deliberately put things in that that allow me to experiment and, and do stuff with my painting that, that you know is a learning curve for me. For other people, it might be they want to do the historical research, and therefore you should plan a lot of historical research because that's what 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 floats your boat. Right. So I think that bit at the start of a project is why will I enjoy this project, and making sure I organise it to, to do the things that I enjoy. Because um, if you just buy, buy some figures because you're at a show, because you like the look of them and not quite sure what you're going to do with them, they're just going to sit in the drawer unpainted right. for two years. Yeah. Right. So, T- two years? So <laughs> two years, are yeah. you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can assure yeah, you I have perhaps. plenty of figures yes. here, here, not quite in arm's reach. Well, actually, yeah, in, in arm's reach, I've got some figures. Of, oh, boy. <laughs> They're well past their sell-by date, if you're saying two yeah. years. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, and the, the wonderful thing about this hobby is there are so many different ways to enjoy it. It's not just, it's called wargaming. It's not really just about gaming. It's about, you know, you could, it could be about research, about painting, about the people you meet, about campaigning, about um, um, uh, about writing rules. You know, there's so many, doing the terrain, there's so many things you can enjoy about this hobby for your and you can organize your project to emphasize that thing you enjoy and that's that's what i love and i've got different projects that emphasize different things some 
some are about the painting, some are about the terrain. Um, I've done some that I just simply want to get some figures on the table quickly. Right. So, yeah, and if, yeah. So, if I may, if I might parallel, uh, uh, listeners and readers of the blog will know that I've been working on a long-term project to convert, well, to basically put a a fantasy veneer on Commands and Colors Ancients, and oh, yes. my my primary army is is Skaven. And I've got some undead also, so I guess kind of a in the fiction I'm writing, the the Skaven are actually a creation of the undead. But uh, oh. uh, no, I, I'm basically yeah, I want to get to the point where I have a convention ready game for eight players. Yeah, and that's that's the eventual goal. That's that's what I'm going for. And you're right, I, I need to paint <laughs> with Skaven a lot of figures quickly. So, yeah. yeah, like you, I've got an airbrush, and right now the only thing I'm doing with it is priming figures, but it's, you know, it's a good way to learn fake, you know, learn how to do that sort of thing, and before too long, I hope to be, you know, airbrushing the, the mat that I use for it, so, yeah. And, and so you'll be structuring that project, you won't, you won't be, you know, painting five layers of, of paint and shading detail on every scoven, because you'll never, because you've got a deadline, so right. you're structuring a project around I'm going to use the techniques that will get me to that deadline. Yep. Because the big thing for you is you're going to have eight players playing a fantastic game, and that's and that's what you're going to really enjoy out of it. I, I guess is, is what you're saying. So. Exactly. Now, you know, I might uh, I might spend a little bit more time on the character models, but past that, it's uh, I describe my painting technique as slapdash. Anyway, it's kind of a combination of uh, base uh, base painting and dry brushing, and uh-huh. You know, it's just a lot of really careful use of the brush, and you most colors get a single pass, and then a wash, and then you're done. Yeah, but that that's perfect for Skaven as well, though, isn't it? It's right. The, the the way they're sculpted and the, the with all the fur and things, it's um, right. It's it, it's going to look great. Yeah. yeah. Down and dirty so, and and undead, yeah. or you know, you you prime them the right color and you hit the right wash with them, and you're just about yeah. done. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, I've selected Landsnecht as their opponent, so... <laughs> I, d- I don't think there's a quick paint methodology for Landsnecht. No, there's but, not, um... but... Well, I say Landsnecht because there's going to be quite a few of the GW plast- Empire plastics, but... Yeah, but they're, they're, pretty... very, they're very similar, aren't they? Yeah, they're pretty Landsnecht-y anyway, so... Yeah. But... Oh, well, <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah, so. that's... It's just something I had in my head. I, I really like the idea of... Um, I'm calling it sub-fantasy, because I want it to be a relatively realistic medieval world, but there's magic. And, yeah. the, okay. and, and the undead, and, well, Skaven are probably about as far as, um, you know, it's taking it into high fantasy with the Skavens, for sure, but... Yeah. And I think the thing you said about, you know, you're, you're doing some sort of background to it and, and some story, that's one of the other things for me that makes makes some of my successful projects more successful in this I've personalized it in some way I'm not just painting 200 French infantrymen for um, for Napoleonics it's I've done something about think about why that unit exists right. how it's different to the other units something about it and that just adds to me that keeps me involved in the project it stops me getting bored and um, you know if you're doing the background to you you know why why your Skaven exist and where the undead created them and all that, I guess it's, it's having a similar effect. So. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably part of the reason why you see so many elite units in, in in players' collections. You know, that's why you know every other player out there has some form of airborne if they're doing World War II. Yeah. 
or you know, as much as I as much as I despise them, and I I'll never well I shouldn't say never I will most likely never have an SS unit, mm. but there's there's a certain dark fan uh, fascination with those units, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, if, if you've got yeah. a, yeah, you know, the it's a rare occasion. Well, I'm I'm the type of guy, being an infantryman myself, I have an appreciation for the you know the British expression, the poor bloody infantry, and so yeah. so my World War II forces are just, for lack of a better term, just straight s- standard infantry units. They're, you know, they're not guards yeah. units. They're not. NKVD units, they're not SS, they're not Fallschirmjäger, they're it's just units from a from a standard infantry regiment of the Soviets and a standard infantry regiment of the of the Germans. They're not even mechanized, so <laughs> So even even within the standard units, you and the, this is a bit about what I've been doing on my forty um, K project, you can you can differentiate them a bit in if, if that's oh, yeah. what you're wanting to do in your project. So oh, yeah. For example, I've done some standard infantry units, which are in um, the armored personnel, the Chimera armored personnel carriers that they have in 40k. And I've done a, in planning it, I planned how what, how would each one of those, because I've got three standard PCs and three units, why are they all a bit different? So I had one one unit that was quite one uh, tank that was quite battle damaged. It had just been in action the day before, so and one of its smoke canister launchers hasn't been refilled yet because it's, it's it reused it. Nice. Um, I've got another one that is um, cleaner and uh, less damaged, and that's a replacement because the the one that was I think it was um, if this number thirteen before got destroyed, and this has just come come out of the reserves to replace that. And I've written a little history that that one's been destroyed three times before, and so there's obviously something about APC number thirteen. Hmm. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but but it's a bit cleaner and it's not damaged. And then I had another one just to put a different twist on it that was uh, more of a logistics one. So it's carrying the uh, the ditching beam which I made and the. Um, and coils of barbed wire and things like that so that that one's you know, just give it a different flavor and then I actually had a fourth one which I made a, a command vehicle with the hatches open which meant having to do a bit of the interior unfortunately so I had to plan all that and paint that before I assembled the model so mm-hmm. even within the standard if you if it's a modeling painting project you, you can do things to, to make them all a bit different if you need to get stuff down on the table because you've got a convention in two weeks that's probably a bit self-indulgent right. <laughs> You don't want to do it, so it's what's what's making you happy in your project, I think, and what what are you getting enjoyment from? Is the thing that'll make the project successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I like that approach where you know, in I got to give credit to the Flames of War folks. They even with standard infantry units, they've really encouraged folks to do research into the units that they're replicating and provide a little bit of a story background to the units that folks bring to say for example tournaments oh, okay. yeah. and yeah. certain tournaments for 40k I understand do the same thing and uh, the the privateer press folks with War Machine and Hordes they, they really hit that hard also and I, I think it's a good approach it you know it gives you a little bit more reason to care about what you're playing and maybe even what you're playing against rather than oh those are the enemy or oh those are my figures and yeah. and I think it's a great way of going about things. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly the projects I've enjoyed most are the ones where there's a bit of 
you know, you've put a bit of yourself into it. You've not just painted an army to get on the battlefield. I've done. I've just finished a project for um, um, some eighteen oh nine French to play um, DBN, which is um, like a Napoleonic version of DBA. Right. Um, and that was just because I quite enjoyed the rules. I want to get some figures there. I enjoy mm -hmm. doing it. I've got the figures. It's great. But I don't feel quite as emotionally attached to them as the ones like, that I've done for my Legion or when I've done my Frostgrave stuff, which I, I put a lot of thought into the background of that, or right. my, my long-standing American War of Independence project where you know I've really done a lot of research on the units mm -hmm. and I've made some of them quite raggedy in the uniforms and some of them a bit more pristine. You know, it, it, That's... I, I feel more sense of um, of joy, I suppose, if that's the right. phrase. When I finish a project, if I put something of myself into it, and it's not just being a knock them out to um, just play a game, but uh, different different people enjoy different things. So. Right, and, and I've mentioned yeah. before how you know I enjoy the big tent aspect of the hobby, where there is there's just about something for everybody in the in the greater hobby. Yeah. So yeah. Um, moving moving along here. Um, yeah. Now you mentioned in. In, in our previous discussion via email and whatnot, there's a couple of key notes that I want to hit on. Uh, you mentioned Kanban, which is a kind of a project management slash inventory system. Or yeah, I've, I've I, heard I it, find that... Now, I've heard of Kanban as an inventory management system, and you're looking at it as a project management system. Would you like to explain what that is? Yeah, um, so, so Kanban, spelled with a K, Kanban, is, is I think it's a Japanese word that mm -hmm. means literally bulletin board or, or something like that. And I think it came, as you say, from logistics and warehouse management that Toyota or one of the, the, um, the Japanese innovators used in order to keep things moving along. So that's very dull, isn't it? How does that apply to wargaming? Well, it when it's implemented on, on a board, it's sort of imagine a board with some columns drawn on and you stick post-it notes on. And the columns are phases of what you're doing. So let's try and work it to wargaming. If you picked it um, very simply, phases of project, buy figures, prep figures, paint figures, base figures, and then you can play. Right. So that might be the stages that you go through for each unit. And you would put a post-it note on the board for each unit. And um, so when you've bought them, you say, I've bought five units, the five post-it notes in the, in the bought figures column. And as you go through the project, you would move the post-it note to the right. The software that does this now, you don't have to do post-it notes. The, the thing that makes Kanban work is that you set yourself a, a little rule of saying there'll never be more than five units in any one column. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to start by buying you know, 30 separate 28 million units and have them all sat on the desk, just massively demotivating. You bottleneck there, you, they're, just, they're just stocks up and nothing's happening. So you would say, if you've said much out, buy five, I'll start prepping two or three, right? So they move into the prep column. I could now buy some more, or I could um, prep some more. I could move some along the board into the, the um, into the painting column and, and so on. Where this where this um, helps is that when you've got quite a few projects and units on the go, and it only takes five minutes to type it into some of the very the free software here, is that when you come to sit at your desk and you've got two hours to work, and I, what am I going to do? You can look at the columns and say, which which one of these am I going to work on? Do I fancy varnishing tonight? Right, I can do some varnishing. Do I want to assemble some plastic figures? I can do that. And you can see how that's moving one of your projects along. So if you've got two or three projects, you can do something that's contributing to keep it moving from the left to the right-hand side, and you're not just going to go and buy more figures that build up a queue somewhere of unpainted figures, or you're going to... Um, paint a load of figures, but then realizing you don't have enough time to varnish them all. Am I explaining this right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So there's a, there's a 
free bit of software, online software I use called, I think it's called Kanban Flow. I've put the, the link in the show notes. And as a way of just listing down the things you're doing and the stage they're at, it's quite, mo- it's quite motivational to start moving things towards the right. And when they get the end, they're finished and they go into the finished queue. Uh, but it also makes sure that you don't, you don't start doing too much um, in any one area that you can just pick, oh, today I fancy making plastic models, so I'll pick the stuff off the prepping side and I'll do that. And you can make it as detailed or as simple as you want. Right. Um, I first heard about it being used for wargaming. There's a, there's a very good 40K podcast called The Independent Characters, and um, the guy who um, who hosts that you know, uses a Kanban all the time for all his projects. And I'm just like, yeah, that's good. I, I quite like that. And it. And it's very visual, very colourful. You can print it down, you can put it on your wall, you can post it to your friends who will then laugh at you for being so anal about how you plan your projects. <laughs> but and you can put it on your blog if you want to to show you can show your progress. So there's, um, it's worth thinking about. It, it's not for everyone, and uh, I wouldn't recommend doing it to the level that Toyota might do it. That's taking the joy out of the hobby. But right. as a visual aid that gives a sense of where all your projects are and where your individual items are in a project, it's it's quite useful and it's it's just worth maybe thinking half an hour about whether it could help you know, you in your project. Yeah, absolutely. Uh- I can see the the definite value to that. I'm I'm being a little bit more deliberate in in my project. Uh, for example, I, I've decided that I'm not going to let any one unit. I've got 23 units for well, 24 actually if you count the screaming bell. I've got 24 units of Skaven, right? And I've decided I'm not I'm not moving forward with any of them until they're all in the same place. So. Right. So right now I'm in the priming stage. They're all assembled. They're all in the units that they need to be in. And in fact, I've got my storage set up. So it's one one cell in the storage is for one unit. And then as I move forward, I can see the you know, I'll be able to see the progress because they're all together in the same storage container. And so right now I'm in the priming stage. And I uh, with the airbrush, I was and I, I can't understate how good an airbrush is is taking care of some of these tasks so yeah, for, great, yeah. for for priming for example i set up primed 36 figures and tore down and cleaned up in 45 minutes uh, the other night so there's 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 definite advantage to to getting an airbrush yeah the initial setup is expensive but it's it's definitely worth it. I must have spent the best part of ten years thinking, could I really justify an airbrush? Should I buy one? Is there any point? Now it's almost ev- everything I do is sort of, oh, I could use the airbrush for that. Right. It's 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 a, it's a revelation once you've got one. But before you buy it, you can't imagine quite how you'd use it. But, oh yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and it's and like you said, I mean, you gotta you gotta be able to show progress because if not, you're just gonna have the uh, you're just it's just gonna sit and languish you know, the entire project. I mean, I've got, I don't know how many half started projects, you know, here in my, here in the bunker. And it's, it's disheartening at one time to think about it, but it's also, I don't know, maybe there's, maybe there's a glimmer of hope that I'll get to all of them. I I know I'm not ever going to get to everything, but you hate to sell stuff because sure enough, as soon as you sell it, you'll want to get back (laughs) into it. That's what you want. (laughs) So, oh, yeah. Um, so, and I, I think having some way to con- you know, everybody is different and having a way to understand how to control your project is important um, but having a way that you know, every night when you sit down you don't always want to do the same thing do you so so 
is can you do something to make progress that isn't always about painting those 600 Macedonian phalangites that you know you've got to do this you know, can you reward yourself and do an officer or something like just but you're still moving towards the end because if you just once it becomes a chore then for me it takes away the enjoyment of the hobby you know I, I want to do always want to do something I'm enjoying not something because I'm feel forced to do it so right so it's having that choice for me is quite important yes you know, some nights i don't want to paint my tanks i want to do something else i want to make a bit of scenery or, or something like that so right one of the and i think one of the things that burns people out on on larger projects is especially when you know you've got a large infantry army and they're all pretty much in the same color scheme yeah and i i think you you hear people talk about how they're tired of, you know, oh, I'm tired of painting blue because they've, been, you know, they got it in their head that I'm going to paint an entire company of, of ultramarine space marines, mm. you know, and yeah. or I'm tired of painting yellow, which is a notoriously difficult color to paint because they've been doing bad moon orcs, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and one of the things with with my Skaven project that's actually kind of saved me is. Uh, if you go back and listen to episode two, I talk about getting a whole bunch of Skaven at the recruits uh, show over in Lee Summit, Missouri. That were some yeah. of them were already painted. Well, I you know I started painting my Skaven with with green clothing, and lo and behold, I buy some with red. Well, now I've got an excuse to paint all sorts of different colors clothing for my Skaven because it's it, they're already there. Why why paint over them or repaint them at this yeah, point? And they're rats. They're going to wear different colored clothes, aren't they? So yeah. <laughs> that's in the nature of them. I mean, one one interesting approach to painting projects, and I've I've really only seen in sort of the fantasy games workshop type area, not in historical, is that people who might say ultramarines paint everything blue, play games with it, and then start to do the highlighting on the figures, play games with them, then start to do the detailed highlighting, still playing games with them, and gradually build up mm -hmm. the level of sophistication on the painting over a year or so while they play with the figures. I've never done that, and I don't know whether it works as well for historical figures as it does for the the more you know, space marine type ones, where you have a single colour and then you build up on it. But having having a way you can reward yourself, you know, I've done all my, my my figures and now I can play with them, but I can then start to make each unit sort of become better over time. And as as I as I hone my skills, is is perhaps an interesting way to do it. And so maybe there's other ways on the sequence in which you paint your units, so you can actually play a game after two or three units. Or, or something like that so it doesn't always feel like there's this huge obstacle that you can't do anything till you've finished and that won't be for 10 years right so, that makes that makes perfect sense and I think that there's a there's a certain value to that now me personally as as little as I paint because I'm just now you know here I am having participated in the in the hobby for 30 years I'm just now getting to the point where I actually enjoy painting you know, I've got so much half painted or unpainted stuff that, you know, if I once it got to an acceptable level, it's at an acceptable level. <laughs> it's not going any further. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I I don't imagine myself doing that. Uh, you know, I, I take my view of the hobby. I take from Shakespeare, the plays the thing, and for me, it's about playing the games. And you know, I've. The figures, although they're great, and I really appreciate a well-painted miniature army such as yours, I'm I don't have any aspirations to get there. So, um, yeah, one well, good enough is good enough. I guess is what I'm trying to that, say. 
Yeah, and 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 therefore, if the thing for you is the game, you've got to make sure you've got figures you can game with, haven't you? There's yeah. no point having loads of figures unbased, unassembled, sat in a drawer because you want to play a game. So getting there quickly is it's got to be a key part of a project for you. Um, I, on my American War of Independence project, I did intent some of the lovely Pendragon 10 millimeter figures. Yes. Um, I, I, I learned a lesson with that. It was the first project I started when I got back properly into wargaming. And then I painted my British army for Guildford Courthouse. It was all mm-hmm. reasonably well researched and planned. And it, I'm, I'm quite happy with it. And then I realized as I finished my last British unit, I hadn't painted a single American unit. So I could play a game. <laughs> so the, 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 I had all these, these these British army. I couldn't play a game until I played at least ten American units. Whereas if I thought through it, I would have painted one British, one American, one British, right. one American, and then I could at least played a sharp practice level game or something like that. And so, and I still haven't finished that project yet because right. I'm still looking at hundreds of militia that I still have to finish. That's all right. So, well, um, the, if you're doing Guilford Courthouse, the militia won't be on the board very long anyway. Well, well, no, but. Um, <laughs> How many different shades of brown do you have to find when painting those coats? In <laughs> ten, not right. many. <laughs> In ten, I'd probably do three or maybe four for you know a really special yeah. guy that happens to just look like a certain American-born but Australian-raised actor. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, that's not my favorite film, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that project's actually that's going to morph now. That so I haven't quite finished it into a terrain project because I quite fancy doing terrain boards that are actually like the battlefield. Okay. And you see quite you see quite a few beautiful Guildford courthouse setups where they, they look like a walk in a country park in midsummer. Whereas in fact it was in uh, you know the weather it was was it February March I'm trying to remember when it was and the it wasn't it wasn't in midsummer the trees won't have been all in fine green you know the the grass won't have been going up there it would have been quite muddy and quite horrible mm-hmm. and I quite. I quite fancy properly researching what type of trees it would have had, what the terrain would have looked like, and doing doing the battlefield looking reasonably realistic. So right. that's one for a future year, I think, and and that'll that'll be again a different sort of objective in the project. So. Absolutely. Um, well, getting back to the Mortoon project Sorry. specifically, yeah. um, how far did you decide to go with prototype uh, schemes for the tanks and for the for the figures, and and how far or Coming from the other side, did you? How far did you go with extrapolation or even your own invention completely? Right, it, it's quite strongly grounded in real French World War One um, uniforms. Um, it's got to be adapted a bit because the figures aren't real French figures. Um, uh, but I, I took a decision that I want the, this strong historical theme to come through what's effectively a fantasy science fiction army. Um, so it's not entirely imaginations. Some of it I've. Although in doing that research, I've then interpreted it. So the the French infantry uniforms are quite a bright blue. I think in reality they wouldn't be. They'd fade to a greyish blue very quickly. Um, And I realised in the research there's no there's no such thing as horizon blue. You have to. It's just a name given to a a light blue colour that the the various factories are are churned out. So, but I the figures are such nice figures. I wanted them to stand out and shine a bit. So I. uh, I tried quite a few variations on uh, looking in the internet about what people do for French figures. So I looked through the whole range of um, Valio blues as well. Clearly, the man in charge of Valio paints likes light blue. There's a lot of them. Yeah. And uh, and I, I bought quite a few, and I, I sampled them on just existing spare figures that I got to try and get a, a sense of, of something that was um, 
horizon blue but but bright and colorful and, mm-hmm. and i came to sort of three paints that i was then able to do that with um, on the tanks um i practiced i've got some old plastic bottles kicking around and i practiced various color schemes that looked quite french but sort of what did i think i could spray and, and, and mask um and and what's handy with the tanks of that period anyway is that the crew sort of made it up themselves they were given guidelines and pots of paint and they they pretty much did their own thing mm-hmm. um so it, it doesn't need to be too accurate and then i also um uses inspiration there's a fantastic um, set of magazines called the the weathering magazine by the uh, mig um who do the pigments the mm-hmm. spanish company mig and they amazingly there's a magazine about weathering i didn't i, I didn't think there was such a thing and they did a supplement for the great war and there's lots of um ideas from that so i picked one of my schemes was actually a German scheme applied to a captured British tank that looked quite French, and I've applied that to my armoured personnel carriers um, to do that. So, a combination of history, but what would bring what I thought would bring the figures to life. It's not complete imaginations. It's not like the stuff that Henry Hyde does, where you know he he plans whole armies right from scratch with the whole colour scheme done completely right. from scratch. But this is because I've I've got a fantasy army and I want well science fiction army and I want to bring a historical thing to it. So I very much wanted to ground it in history, um, sure. and I'd spent quite some time working that out. Similarly with my cavalry because they have some amazing cavalry figures where you know the horses and gas masks and all sorts of things. Um, I wanted to make them feel uh, like the French 1914 pattern, which was virtually Napoleonic. Um, I, I could have done them in the in the light blue, but it would have just looked like an, an infantryman and a horse. Right. And I, I quite like the idea of the the ridiculous idea of a Napoleonic cavalry running mm-hmm. through trenches. So, <laughs> so, so I, I've deliberately done them in you know, the dark blue coats, and I found some um, on the internet some colorized photographs from 1914, um, which are probably inaccurate colors. But with very shiny cuirasses and helmets, and um, it just looks so so impressive, but wrong yeah. to have in a war of that period. So I so I, so I, I use some very shiny paints to um, to give that that polished cuirass sort of um, parade ground idea. Of course, that you wouldn't do that on a battlefield, but it but it's fitting into the aesthetic I want. Yeah, um, well, to, to be fair, there's a lot of things in 40k that you wouldn't do on a battlefield. I've got yeah, almost all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but hey, I, let's just, let's charge into the ma- that machine gun nest with absolutely no concept of suppression. Yeah, yeah. And while we're doing it, take take the helmet off my power armor because I yeah. don't like wearing that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, talking about the shiny paint, I must recommend, by the way, is the Valio metal color. Um, okay. Not not the val- not in the Valio M range, but it's called metal color. It's designed for spray brushing, though. They are the best metallics I've I've experienced um, for both. For, uh, brush painting and airbrushing so such thick pigment but such fine paints so, mm-hmm. so they really cover well and give it a fantastic shine and they must have about 20 different metallic colors in the range definitely recommend them wow okay so, um so 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 yes i did a fair amount of research but then tried to think how i would bring that theme through um, um through the the science fiction side of it and i've done some other not so much the paint skin but the uniform some things my tank commander um the, the games workshop model is a bit prussian russian type feeling so i've actually made um, a kp hat for him rather than the the peaked hat the games workshop did um which was a bit of a challenge for my sculpting skills but it looks more like a like a french commander now um right. just to, just to add that sort of touch to it as well um and then um you know i'm i'm 
trying to think about how I could just bring this subtlety of the Frenchness through without it being blatant. So I haven't put a French flag on things because it's it's not it's not a French unit. Right. But it's how, how you just get that sense of um, uh, of the of the theme that will come through the army. Yeah. And and taking a look at that vehicle commander, it's it really ties. I think it really ties the the project together with the the kepi that you sculpted for it. And I I gotta say, if you ever want to expand the unit, you might think about doing. Uh, I guess they wouldn't be foreign legion necessarily, but guys with kepi blancs. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, I've I've half thought about that. In which case, I'd probably find heads with kepis on because it took me some time to do that. I had to do yeah. some plastic color to make sure the shape was right, and I'm not. I don't think sculpting is my strength at all. Yeah. So doing one of them, that was interesting. Doing 20, perhaps not. But, but I quite like a unit that felt like that, yeah. So it may, may that way I'll go on the list of things to do at some point when I'm topping up. I'll, I'll have to take a look, but I wonder if Victoria Miniatures do uh, heads with cappies. Oh, I don't know. They they might do. There was, um, there was also... Oh, I forget the name. There's another company that's been doing... Um, Games Workshop compatible bits um, mm. that have been doing British and German First World War heads and things, and they they might well be doing something. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure that somebody does something. That sure. it'll need a gas mask on to fit in with the rest of my army. Though, right. So, that's yeah, that, that'd be the hard part. That would be the hard part to make sure that all the that those two main elements come together in one for sure. Mm. Oh. Um, so what what size force? Uh, do you think you'll end up with? So I've not set a limit on this. Um, I've, I've, I've aimed to being able to get a playable force fairly soon. Um, and so Games Workshop terms, that tends to be about 1,500 points, and I'll be about there when I've finished. I've got four tanks, four armored personnel carriers, and all the various artillery. That, that'll be about there. Um, but I, I like to get projects now to a initially completed stage, and then what I call a top-up phase, which is I can then just add things that take my interest when when I want to, and so the project sort of never finishes. But but I've got a point at which it's a very usable army, and I think I'll be at that point um, in the next couple of months. But what I am building up to, and I haven't declared on the blog yet, is the um, I want to do what's called a Bane Blade, which is a huge tank mm-hmm. that Games Workshop make. Um, it, it's quite expensive. I think hundred pounds or more to to buy this massive model. It's basically a battleship with um, right. with tracks. Um, so this has all been building up to feeling confident enough in my skills to do that, and I think I'm about getting there. I can do that. And if you're fe- if if you're feeling overconfident, Simon, uh, there was a Games Workshop article with templates to make your own Bane Blade out of plastic card. Oh, right. That was um, that would have been <laughs> oh that would have been in the early '90s, probably issue around 130 or so give or you know plus or minus five issues if, if memory serves so I mean, I yeah i'm not sure i'm at that level of confidence yes so, yeah well, it'd be, so it'd, be a, it'd be a heck of a lot be a heck of a lot cheaper than you know 100 pounds <laughs> well well true <laughs> uh, so so i haven't yet planned that bit and i think that'll be a, almost a project in its own right because it's a bit it's a big old model and it's got lots of things to it and i was thinking of it looks like a normal Games Workshop tank, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's stuff about if I researched sort of the fortress architecture from Verdun, you know, the shapes of the, the turrets and things like that, and see if I could work out how to convert some of the Bane Blades so it look it looks like a 
more like a, a moving First World War fortress, if you see right. what I'm saying, rather than, than a tank. Right, right, and right. And that might be the project bit of that project. So I think that that'll be a mini project in its own right. So I'm going to get this to a playable point, and then then I think the Bane Blade might come later in the year, but not scratch build. <laughs> <laughs> well, think of the think of the opportunities you have to put uh, FT17 turrets on the sponsons for the for the heavy oh. bolters. What a brilliant idea! Right, that's going down on my little ideas list. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or you could use an, you know Saint Charmant as the turret. <laughs> yeah, in fact, you probably could in scale. If it's, uh... Yeah. Turrets yeah. upon turrets upon turrets. No. Yeah. Yeah. That that definitely be something for those. Well, you know, some of the. It, it's obvious that they've taken quite a few design cues from World War One, especially for the. Uh, for the imperial stuff, you know, there's yeah. there's no secret there, and it just makes sense that you would go ahead and, you know, push it to the limit in that in that regard. And I, I think that one of the great things about the about this project is you have a definite vision for it, and you can see, I mean, you can see that vision in in spades. Uh, one of the things I liked what Games Workshop did with the. Uh, Second edition Imperial Guard figures, the the Metal Cadians and Valhallans and Catachins and uh, later the Steel Legion. Is there's there there's a definite design cue to everything, and they they stuck with that for that particular range. the The original Metal Cadians are, to my view, are very obviously based off of uh, World War II German Fallschirmjägers, and yeah, they are, they're if they're not my favorite sci-fi figures ever, they're in the top two or three. And uh, my single favorite gaming figure of all time is the is the Metal Cadian Kneeling Plasma Gunner. I don't know why I like that figure so much, but but I do. And I've got well, I've got quite a few of those figures. I'm, well, without exaggeration, I've got a realistic company's worth of them. I've got I've probably got close to a hundred of them. And uh, now actually painted is another matter, but <laughs> that's, that's neither here nor there. But yeah, they. I'll I'll give Games Workshop one thing is that throughout their history they've had a they've had a really good way of taking a design cue and running with it. They know what they want their stuff to look like, and they stay consistent within that range. Now follow on follow on editions of that same product might not have that same design cue but they they definitely know what they want to do and you know the death key, the death core of krieg figures are another example of that and all of the forge world imperial guard stuff that they do to support it you know with the with the siege tanks and the uh the personnel carriers and and all that it's you definitely you definitely get the feeling they you know they they know their onions to borrow a a British expression when it yeah, comes it, to design. It, it, definitely, it, it's a strength of them. And, and then I, th- I think you can all, as I'm doing, you can always add your own flavor to it or something. If you've got, if you want sort of an aesthetic vision to an army, you you can you know, if you think that through at the beginning, it could be as simple as a color scheme. It could be the, you know the shape of the helmets or something like it. Something that just brings that whole army together. 
um, in a non-historical army. Obviously, in a historical army, you're going to do it as, as they really were. Um, I'm, but the project I'm going to start simultaneously soon as well is um, totally different. It's more using. I think you had Howard Whitehouse on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. He was talking about the 42 millimeter shiny toy soldier mm-hmm. company stuff that he uses. So I'm doing something similar, um, and that aesthetic is going to be all about. It's it's as if it was using Britain's figures, and the battles are going to be based around the invasion scare stories of the 1890s. So right. so that's going to be an aesthetic. They're going to be on square bases, no basing material, glossy figures, mm-hmm. painted like Britain's figures. You know, but keeping that theme the whole way through and my scenery will be to match that and the, the rules will be something I pick. I don't know how it's rules. I'd be quite good, actually. Uh, something that, that get a sense of, of that theme because it draws the whole thing together. You know, it, it's, there's no point buying toy soldiers and painting them up hyper-realistic. Well, maybe there is, but it's, it, for me, that wouldn't be the aesthetic. So, yeah, finding a theme that's going to hold you know, hold your interest and hold your old army together, I think, is, is quite powerful. Right, absolutely. And... Um... Yeah, it's having that vision right from the beginning is really is really important. I I don't have like you know, for the Skaven project, I don't have a vision for it aside from get color on it and get it on the table. And I guess like for lack of a better term, I guess you could say that might be a vision in itself, especially if you're wanting to have a kind of a motley bedraggled uh force like Skaven anyway so but uh, I, I certainly think that you know if, if you're going to do for lack of a better term a concept uh, project like like yours yeah it, really nailing that down and really getting down to the brass tacks of what that design or those designs mean you know the, the core elements of them and like I said you know you, you follow design cues and you and you move forward with it. That's uh, so that it's undeniable. Even you know you could do, you know, even if you're not using, uh, even if you weren't using the the death the death core figures. I mean, as long as you kept those color schemes and the and the thought process behind them. I mean, you could easily apply those same color schemes to an Eldar force. Or absolutely, yeah, you could or, do, yeah. or a Tal Force, and it would be certainly it would certainly be alien, but you could immediately recognize it as those are inspired by World War One French vehicles and infantry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this this um, the great thing about the science fiction fantasy area is you you can you know, you can blend themes like that and and get a result that's, that's very identifiable. And um, yeah, you know, I've seen people do Eldar forces where it's not vehicles, it's dragons that they're riding and things, and and then that sort of ties it together into an everything sort of slightly draconic in the way they do it. But it looks like Eldar and it looks like dragon ride. It's if you put that thought in at the beginning, you can get some really powerful results. When you don't need huge modelling or painting skills, it's just about getting the consistency of there's some cue about the theme in everything you do. Right, and and I think that there's definitely a there's definitely value to sitting down. And thinking about what it is that you want to achieve with your project, like you said at the beginning of this of this episode, and yeah, that's because it's 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 tough to change midstream. Yeah, you know, I mean once you've started, so it's it's definitely worth. And it's just like anything else in in the hobby. You know the the amount of time that you spend preparing for it is going to pay off in the end. So uh, yeah, I, again, I 
I really appreciate the work that you're putting into it. Uh, I, I really appreciate that you're that you're sharing it with the world through your blog. And I, I guess we should go ahead and we'll get these in the show notes, but just to make sure, uh, in case folks want to go ahead and tap it out while they're listening, what what is your blog address? Um, it's Goat Major, which is one word, goatmajor.org.uk. Okay. Goat Major is my forum name normally when I log in. And that's your Twitter handle as well, at Goat Major. It is, yes. Much to the annoyance of the Goat Major Cup pub in Cardiff, who I think won that Twitter handle. <laughs> but I got there first. <laughs> well, well, uh, that's that's just how it goes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. As long as they don't threaten you, you'll, I think you'll be okay, right? But I do get the occasional tweet that says, I'm having a lovely drink in the at Goat Major. And I reply back saying, you know. Oh, that's too fun. <laughs> well, it's it's been a real pleasure speaking with you about your project and just the general concept of, of planning a project, Simon. Uh, really look forward to seeing... Uh, what comes of this project once it's done? I really want to see this Bane Blade when you get when you get to it. And uh, I've built expectations now, haven't I? I'm going to have to do it now. So. Well, you don't have to. I mean, you can say, "Well, I'm not ready for it," and you know, you've got the you've got that cop out that you think that your skills aren't up to snuff yet. So, well, thanks for having me on as well, Jay. I've uh, really enjoyed it. Love listening to the podcast. And um, uh, but, yeah, thanks again. It's been great to discuss it with you. Like always, folks, if the wargaming you're having isn't fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold 2017. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Discussion on the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com.